Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, uh, last week we had a... Uh, uh a session after the service on the Israel Folau issue. And um, what a topic like that really shows is uh, an example of one of those issues in, in, in Australia that really causes, can cause polarisation and division um, between people. It, you know, it's, it's as if when so every now and again these issues come along and the cracks between the tribes in Australia open up a little bit and bleed a little bit. And there are even some people who... Um, make it their hobby to shove a, a crowbar in between these cracks and open them up in, even further, forcing us to take a side and make a decision about are we on a for or against whatever this is, particular issue is. And um, because of the nature of our Western culture being like this now, it feel, can feel like at times it's so hard to really have healthy and good conversations with people that are not like you, that are from a different tribe. Um, I mean, I noticed this really starkly as, a, a, as an Anglican minister because when I say to people, you know, maybe it's at the playground at school or whatever, picking up the kids and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm an Anglican minister. It, the response I get isn't like hostility or hatred or anything like that. It's just more of a glazy eye look, you know. It's like, well, they can't compute. Um, and I'm, I'm sure um, if you are a Christian here today, um, you've probably experienced that some, something similar at various times. If you say, I went to church on Sunday, you know, that glazy-eyed look, people just don't know how to relate very well, how to understand each other. But with these kind of issues like Israel Folau, in certain circumstances, unfortunately, uh, what can be a difference of opinion between people groups in Australia can turn into full-on polarisation and even hostility sometimes. People can actually see each other as illegitimate in their opinions and um, even that can turn to hatred in, 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 in um, the worst situations. In a recent podcast interview, it's a podcast that I, I quite enjoy, uh, the Ezra Klein podcast. He's the editor of Vox magazine in New York. And he was interviewing, it's, he talks a lot about culture, and he especially talks about this issue of polarisation. And he was interviewing David Brooks, who's one, a writer, New York Times writer that I really like. And David Brooks was trying to give an explanation, a psychological, maybe a social explanation for why it is that we find it so hard to relate to each other as human beings in the West at the moment when we've got differences of opinion. Why is, it, why is it that differences of opinion can even turn into hostility? Um, and he says, our core problem is a social and emotional problem, a plentiful distrust, a lack of connection, a lack of ability to treat each other well, and as a result, social isolation, which perversely leads to tribalism. If you leave people naked and alone, they do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do. They revert to tribe. And tribe seems like community, but it's actually the evil twin of community. Community is built on mutual affection 
and tribalism is built on mutual hatred, us and them. They have the scarcity mentality. They want to build walls. They want to fight. Now, David Brooks is talking polemically here. Tribes as a concept aren't necessarily evil, but he's talking about when you've got hard walls between the tribes. Communities aren't necessarily good either, um, but, but uh, the type of community he's talking about, he's doing a kind of a contrast here to make his point. If you are part of some kind of a community, maybe it's a, a club or a sporting group or something, or maybe a group here at church, and you are intentionally excluding people in that group, uh, then you are making that same social mistake that Brooks is talking about. You're promoting social isolation. You're promoting an us and them mentality. And this is, I would say, sinful and hurtful, not who we've been called to be as the church. Sometimes because of our own fear and loneliness, we can actually cause other people to fear fear and loneliness because we push them away, we reject them. You might have heard many times people say, oh, the church marginalised me or this church doesn't, you know, connect with me or um, I'm not able to make friends here. Nobody cared for me in this church. And you can hear this criticism pointed at many social groups but the church is the body of Christ. We're to be distinct. We're to be defined by humble, self-sacrificial grace and love. We're, to, we're supposed to bring flavour to the meal like salt. We're supposed to be like a lamp bringing light to the dark room. And this brings me to the theme of the sermon series and also the festival in September which is the theme of crossing the aisle. What does it mean to cross the aisle? It's actually an American politics phrase, um, but I, I, I use this because it's most closely um, parallel to what, what I'm wanting to talk about. In 2008, uh, the late uh, John McCain was running for president, you might remember, when he went against Barack Obama. And at a meeting, someone claimed, uh, you know, one of M McCain's meetings, someone claimed that Barack Obama was an Arab. And M McCain responded in, in the meeting saying this, first of all, I want to be president of the United States. And obviously, I do not want President Obama to be. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared of as the president of the United States. And the crowd boos. No, no, McCain continues, I want everyone to be respectful. And let's be sure we are, because that is how politics should be conducted in America. Now, John McCain was seen as one of the preeminent statesmen of the Republican Party, and it was because he was seen as the best example of someone who could cross the aisle. Um, he, he was a politician who would go... To cross the aisle means to work with those who are on the other side to try and bring consensus and unity. And it requires putting down your tribal um, sort of preferences, your values, and, and saying we're going to actually prioritise good le legislation over political point scoring. And in, the, in America, American politics, this is seen as a virtue... Um, they're, not, they're not betraying their party here when politicians do this. They're, they're actually aiming for the higher good. Um, so 
what I'm saying is I'm pointing to this as an example, crossing the aisle, when you go and work with people who are not like you, to bring unity, to try and get to understand each other, to sit down and go, I want to know you, I want to be with you, I want to understand you, and let's work together as a metaphor for the kind of church that I want us to be. I want us to be a church that gets to know people who are not like us, who are present with people not like us. I want us to be able to break free from our tribal enclaves. Why? Because I believe this is what, it's, what we've been called to do by God. The gospel speaks to a tribalised world divided by aisles of suspicion and judgment, aisles of enmity, to use a word from the Genesis passage that we had read out. God has called his people to cross over that aisle into opposing tribes, carrying God's love of Jesus Christ. And more than this, we worship a God who actually crossed the aisle to be with us. And that's what I want us to move to now, to think about this idea, the God who first crossed the aisle to be with us. What is this aisle we're talking about? What am I, what am I talking about when I say, for us to cross the aisle? It begins with the story of humanity in Eden, with God, in harmony, free from tribal difference, free from polarisation. But it's only after Adam and Eve sin by eating the, the fruit from the tree that they, God told them not to eat from that everything starts to fall apart and God imposes a frustration on the world. And the first frustration we can observe in the passage from Genesis is a kind of a psychological or a social, a psychosocial aisle, or let's use that word, a psychosocial aisle of enmity, of opposition between people. Where enmity, if you don't know what that word means, it means a state of feeling active opposition or hostility. God says in verse 11 of the Genesis 3 passage to Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam already is singling her out and blaming her for his sin. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve blamed the serpent. So God punishes the man and the woman by introducing a permanent, permanent enmity between them, a consequence of their sin. There's a politics in their relating now. And this is sort of symbolic of the politics that would go on to exist between human beings. The very next chapters in Genesis um, play out human beings uh, relating to each other in, in, in sinful ways, hurting each other, killing each other. He says to, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. So the beauty of interpersonal difference becomes now the politics of difference. So that's one aisle, the aisle between people the Isle of Opposition between people. There's another aisle, though. There's a second aisle, a physical and a spiritual aisle between God and people. 
God drives the humans out of the garden and place cherubim, which are angels, guarding the entrance with a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You'll see on the um, front cover, I've taken a photo of the tree of life to show you what it looked like. No, not really. It's in New Zealand, just a big, it's a big tree, but it's two and a half thousand years old, that tree. Amazing. So this is the second aisle. They're pushed out of the garden, out of harmony, out of perfection with God. So the only way humans could re-enter paradise and return to their state of intimacy with God would be on God's terms. They needed to come over to, they need God to come over to them and rescue them from their separation from him. And this brings us to our big point for the sermon. So if you're not understanding me so far, it's all right, I'll tell you what I'm trying to say. Here is the big point of the sermon. Christians should humbly and sacrificially cross the aisle to be with other people because God first humbly and sacrificially crossed the aisle to be with people. I'll say it one more time. Christians should humbly and sacrificially cross the aisle to be with other people because God first humbly and sacrificially crossed the aisle to be with people. Let me show you how I get this idea from our passage in Philippians 2. In our passage from Philippians 2, Paul repeats an early hymn of the church. And in this hymn, he's trying to show the the Christians in the church in Philippi how they can remake their relationships in a godly way, how they can reshape them so they're not um, uh, selfish and, and sinful, but they can be shaped in the way that God would have them be shaped. And he says, like this, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And he goes the hymn, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He stepped down from the throne room of heaven. He crossed the aisle of enmity between God and people because his status as a son of God was not something he wanted to exploit for his advantage. Rather, he saw his status as driving him towards unselfish giving. This is God's character and this is Christ's character. He says he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. It's not like... um, the Son of God gave up his authority or even his power. He's still the Son of God. With, he's still um, got the status of the Son of God, but now he has uh, the human likeness, it says. He is the nature of a servant in human likeness. He became human in the exact sense, in every sense that makes someone a human. So he doesn't just look like a human being, he becomes a human being. And more than this, he becomes a servant. Uh, The word for servant there is doulos in Greek, which means slave. The son of God became a slave. Sometimes uh, one of my bug, the the furfies that I hear people say sometimes is that the New Testament affirms slavery. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, I've got a thought of good answer and you can say, yes, it does. It does in the sense that it says that the beautiful thing that the son of God 
became a slave for our sake. So in that sense, it does affirm slavery. Philippians 2, verse 7. Um, Slaves in the Roman Empire were deprived of their human rights. And so in the same way, to cross the aisle of enmity between God and people, the Son of God emptied himself and became a slave so that he could be with people. Christ refused to exploit the privilege that he had and he gave up that right to become a slave. To use Jesus' own words, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his ultimate act of servanthood is to die on the cross. In Philippians 2 verse 8, in our passage, it says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this is how far God goes to cross over that isle that was first created back in Eden, as as Adam and Eve exit Eden. In the world of the Philippians, the world of Paul and of Jesus, crucifixion was the lowest one could stoop socially. It was the cruelest form of execution in the Roman Empire. It was commonly reserved for the lower classes, especially slaves. There was a second century BC Latin playwright, Plautus, who, who said in a play that slaves had been executed by crucifixion from time immemorial. It was a particularly bad form of execution. Crucifixion was embarrassing and taboo in polite society. It involved cruelty and unspeakable abuse and torture, impaling people with swords and nails. The death was slow and gruesome. Victims starved and bled to death over several days. This is what the Son of God went through in becoming a slave, to cross that aisle. When Jesus went to the cross, his perfect sacrifice was a divine crossing of the aisle because he died not for righteous people like him not even good people but he died for ungodly sinners people who were not like him ultimate crossing the aisle therefore it says in the hymn therefore god exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father So the Christians in Philippi can be confident that because Christ has been exalted and stands in authority over all things, one day their own body, with all its struggles, will be transformed to be like his glorious body. So Paul is saying to the Christians in Philippi that they should imitate Jesus in his humility and lowliness. They should be obedient just as he was obedient all the way to the cross. And if they are faithful as Jesus was faithful, then the final day of of all time will mean the fulfilment of their deepest longings to be in eternity with God. Jesus crossed the aisle when he was born. He crossed from heaven to earth and he crossed the aisle in his death when he died for people not like him. But also he crossed the aisle in his life. In his life, Jesus transcended all the cultural norms of his friends by, by, by meeting with people not like him from opposing cultures. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, many of whom came to him, in fact, because it's the sick who need a doctor, Jesus said, 
rather than the healthy. He had life-giving encounters with men and women, crossing over several cultural barriers along the way. The Samaritan woman at the well, the Samaritan leper in the village, village who he healed, the Canaanite woman with the sick daughter, and the centurion soldier in Capernaum with a sick servant. These are all people from different cultures, people who the culture at the time deemed a no-go zone. They were taboo for a, a rabbi to, to converse with, because of their gender, their race, their role in society. When Jesus crossed the aisle, he did so with the wisdom of God who knows the deepest longings of every person. So at a simple level, we look to Jesus for our cue on how human relationships should be transformed. Paul introduces the hymn by, about Christ by saying, in your relationships with one another, be like Jesus. This is the radicalization of human relationships. Verse 3 of the passage says that understanding this Christ-like behavior should make us, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. We see humility, we see servanthood, we should imitate him. We should empty our privilege and status for the sake of others. So this is a model for Christian community and it's a model for how Christians should relate to others as well. This is how we shine our light before others. This is how we bring the good news of Jesus to each other and to the whole world. And this is how we grow in maturity of faith. So how can we practically do this? How do we practically do this? Well, um, I, I'm, I want to suggest, first of all, we've got to practice doing it. How do we cross the aisle? We practice. We practice on each other. That's the first thing. Uh, there's an ethicist from the Columbia Business School, um, Catherine Phillips, who, who talk, writes about how human beings have, have got this amazing ability to um, categorise each other. Uh, into uh, race, gender, age, but also more surprising categories. And she says this, um, for instance, minimal distinctions such as an ostensible preference for a type of painting or for wearing a red shirt versus a blue shirt can be used to examine the effects of social category diversity, allowing for a connection of this research to the long tradition of social categorization and social identity research dating back to the 1970s. The critical feature here is that people use these social char characteristics to tell themselves that some subset of the group of people is like me at a deeper level in terms of what we know and how we feel about problems we are facing and that some of them are not. So we see this occurring in congregations and I'm sure it happens here. People look at each other and they, and they go, that person is this age, of this gender, they wear these kind of clothes, they use this kind of language, they have this kind of accent. Um, uh, are they married or are they single? Do they, do they smile? Do they frown? And then as we do that, we sort each other out into categories subconsciously and then herd together, right? We can't help but do this. This is human nature, but we have to try and resist it. So my challenge for us in practising crossing the aisle into other tribes is to try and cross the aisle with people in this congregation who are not like you people who are different to you. Now, this is going to require humility in the same way that we see Jesus, the Son of God, humbling himself to be with us. We have to be, reshape our relationships through humility. 
except that you might be a socially awkward person and no one's ever told you, right? Uh, it, it's highly possible. You know, I, I know that I might be a bit weird, that I've got a strange topics that I like to talk about. So you've just got to accept that you might be a bit strange and be humble about that and that perhaps you're not connecting because you come across in a way that's a bit strange or disinterested. Maybe you look disinterested when you talk to people. So humility requires you to have a thick skin and to go, I'm going to try with this person and just get to know them. You might try the first few people and get rejected a few times. You might say, oh, can you come out for lunch with me? And they might say, uh, I'll, I'll get back to you, and they don't get back to you. There might be a bit of that that happens. Jesus became a slave so that he could rescue you. So you can become a slave for other people by becoming humble in your relating. It's also going to require initiative. So what I often find is in churches, um, you, everyone waits for the other person to make the first move in relationships. But you have to be the person to take initiative. You have to make the first move. God took the initiative with us. He made the first move. We did nothing. It also requires planning. Crossing the aisle with people requires you to have a diary that's going to be rejigged. You have to be flexible. You have to have margin in your diary to have time for people. Um, how are you ever going to be able to cross the aisle with somebody from outside of your tribe if you can't even cross the aisle with someone inside your tribe who's a little bit different to you? You need time. So you need to plan with people. You need to maybe plan a month in advance with some people. Don't be surprised. Perhaps you need to get your diary out. You need humility, you need initiative, you need planning. So over the next month, as we lead up to the, the week in September, why don't you try and get to know people in this congregation who are not like you? Don't just gather with other people from your age group or from your barrack for the same football team. You know, go for people who are quite different from you. Don't assume that somebody of a certain age bracket is not going to want to talk to you and, and also not looking for friends. It requires humility on your part. Then after you've practised on each other, you can, you can try and cross the aisle with your neighbours. So try and have a meal with your neighbours. Invite your neighbours over for a meal. During, during the week of the festival, I, I wanna, I wanna, I'd love to see all of us do that. One meal with our neighbour. Then if you really want to go up a gear, you can try and cross the aisle with people you don't know. In our festival, you'll have opportunities to, to have conversations with rough sleepers, with people from even other churches. Isn't that interesting that we have churches all around us and we wouldn't have a clue who's in them? You'll be able to potentially have conversations with people of other faiths, with other, other views of the world. Let's become slaves as we follow in obedience Jesus Christ, the Lord of the slaves. So what have I said this morning? I've said that we should humbly and sacrificially cross the aisle to be with other people who are not like us because God did that to be with us. And I've said that it requires us to be like Christ. We have to lower ourselves. We have to become slaves for each other. 
And this is obedience. And when we do this, we will start to live out the radical Christ-like relationships that God calls us to. Let us pray. Uh, Lord God, we pray for supernatural um, power to do this because it is hard. It's, it's not easy to cross over the tribes and talk to people, um, especially in the world that we live in where we often don't know how to relate and converse with people that we don't know and that think differently to us. And pray that we can transcend those tribal differences. We can transcend the issues of polarisation. We can be a church that really is connecting with the world around us. Amen.